Chapter Four of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Cautiously approaching on all fours to within a few yards of the nearest lodge, occasionally halting and listening to discover evidence as to whether the village was deserted or not, we finally decided that the Indians had fled before the arrival of the cavalry, and that none of the empty lodges were before us. This conclusion somewhat emboldened as well as accelerated our progress. Arriving at the first lodge, one of our party raised a curtain, or mat, which served as a door, and the doctor and myself entered. The interior of the lodge was dimly lighted by the decaying embers of a small fire built in the center. All around us were to be seen the unusual adornments and articles which constitute the household effects of an Indian family. Buffalo robes were spread like carpets over the floor. Head mats used to recline upon were arranged as if for the comfort of their owners. Parfleches, a sort of Indian box with their contents apparently undisturbed, were to be found carefully stowed away under the edges or borders of the lodge. There, with the doormats, paint bags, and rawhide ropes, and other articles of Indian equipment, were left as if the owners had only absented themselves for a brief period. To complete the picture of an Indian lodge, over the fire hung a camp kettle, in which by means of a dim light of the fire, we could see what had been intended for the supper of the late occupants of the lodge. The doctor, ever on the alert to discover additional items of knowledge, whether pertaining to history or science, snuffed the savory odors which arose from the dark recesses of the mysterious kettle. Casting about the lodge for some instrument to aid him in his pursuit of knowledge, he found a horn spoon with which he began his investigation of the contents, finally succeeding in getting possession of a fragment, which might have been the half of a duck or rabbit, judging merely from its size. "'Ah,' said the doctor, in his most complacent manner, "'here is the opportunity I have long been waiting for. "'I have often desired the test and taste of the Indian mode of cooking. "'What?' do you suppose this is holding up the dripping morsel unable to obtain the desired information the doctor whose naturally good appetite had been sensibly sharpened by his recent exercise of la de set to with a will and ate heartily at the mysterious contents of the kettle what can this be again inquired the doctor he was only satisfied on one point that it was delicious, of dish fit for a king. Just then, Gurrier, the half-breed, entered the lodge. He could solve the mystery, having spent years among the Indians. To him, the doctor appealed for information. Fishing out a huge piece and attacking it with the voracity of a hungry wolf, he was not long in determining what the doctor had supped so heartily upon. His first word settled the mystery. Why, this is dog. I will not attempt to repeat the few but emphatic words uttered by the heartily disgusted member of the medical fraternity as he rushed from the lodge. Other members of our small party had entered other lodges only to find them, like the first, 
deserted but little of the furniture belongings to the lodges had been taken showing how urgent and hasty had been the flight of the owners to aid in the examination of the village reinforcements were added to our party and an exploration of each lodge was determined upon at the same time a messenger dispatched to general hancock informing him of the flight of the indians some of the lodges were closed by having bush or timber piled up against the entrance as if to preserve the contents others had huge pieces cut from their sides these pieces evidently being carried away to furnish temporary shelter to the fugitives in most of the lodge the fires were still burning i had entered several without discovering anything important finally in the company with the doctor i arrived at one the interior of which was quite dark the fire having almost died out procuring a lighted faggot i prepared to explore it as i had done the others but no sooner had i entered the lodge than my faggot failed me leaving me in total darkness handing it to the doctor to be relighted i began feeling my way about the interior of the lodge i had almost made the circuit when my hand came in contact with a human foot at the same time a voice unmistakably indian and which evidently came from the owner's foot convinced me that i was not alone my first impression was that in their hasty fight the indians had gone off leaving this one asleep my next very naturally related to myself i would have gladly placed myself on the outside of the lodge and there matured plans for interviewing its occupant but unfortunately to reach the entrance of the lodge i must either pass over or round the owner of the before-mentioned foot and voice could i have been convinced that among its other possessions there was neither tomahawk nor scalping knife pistol nor war club or any similar article of the noble red man's toilet i would have risked an attempt to escape through the low narrowing opening of the lodge but who ever saw an indian without one or all of these interesting trinkets had i made the attempt i should have expected to encounter either the keen edge of a scalping knife or the blow of the tomahawk and to have engaged in the questionable struggle for life this would not do i crouched in silence for a few moments hoping the doctor would return with the lighted faggot i need not say that each succeeding moment spent in the darkness of that lodge seemed like an age i could hear a slight movement on the part of my unknown neighbor which did not add to my comfort why does not the doctor return at last i discovered the approach of a light on the outside when it neared the entrance i called to the doctor and informed him that an indian was in the lodge and that he had better have his weapon ready for a conflict i had upon discovering the foot drawn my hunting knife from its scabbard and now stood waiting in the denouement with his lighted faggot in one hand and cocked revolver in the other the doctor cautiously entered the lodge and there directly between us wrapped in a buffalo robe lay the cause of my anxiety a little indian girl probably ten years old not a full blood but half-breed she was terribly frightened at finding herself in our hands with none of her people near why was she left behind in this manner 
Gurrier, our half-breed interpreter, was called in. His inquiries were soon answered. The little girl, who at first was an object of our curiosity, became at once an object of pity. The Indians, an unusual thing for them to do toward their own blood, had willfully deserted her, but this at last was the least of their injuries to her. After being shamefully abandoned by the entire village, a few of the young men of the tribe returned to the deserted lodge, and upon the person of this little girl committed outrages, the details of which are too sickening for these pages. She was carried to the fort, and placed under the care of kind hands and warm hearts, where everything was done for her comfort that was possible. Other parties in exploring the deserted village found an old, decrepit Indian of the Sioux tribe, who had also been deserted, owing to his infirmities and inability to travel with the tribe. He was also kindly cared for by the authorities of the fort, Nothing was gleaned from our search of the village which might indicate the direction of the flight. General Hancock, on learning the situation of affairs, dispatched some companies of infantry to the deserted village, with orders to replace the cavalry and protect the village of its contents from disturbance until its final disposition could be determined upon. Starting my command back to our camp near General Hancock's headquarters, I galloped on in advance to report the particulars to the general. It was then decided that with eight troops of cavalry I should start in pursuit of the Indians at early dawn on the following morning, April 15th. There was no sleep for my command the remainder of the night, the time being fully occupied in preparation for the march, neither the extent nor the direction of which was known. Mess kits were overhauled and fresh supplies of coffee, sugar, flour, and the other articles which go to supply the soldier's larder were laid in. Blankets were carefully rolled so as to occupy as little space as possible. Every useless pound of luggage was discarded, for in making a rapid pursuit after Indians, much of the success depends upon the lightness of the order of the march. Saratoga trunks and their accompaniments are at a discount. Never was the old saying that in Rome one must do as the Romans do more aptly illustrates than on an Indian campaign. The Indian, knowing that his safety either on offensive or defensive movements, depends in a great measure upon the speed and endurance of his horse, and takes advantage of every circumstance which will favor either the one or the other. To this end, he divests himself of all superfluous dress and ornament when preparing for rapid movements. The white man, if he hopes for success, must adopt the same rule of action and encumber his horse as little as possible. Something besides well-filled mess chests and carefully rolled blankets is necessary in preparing for an Indian campaign. Arms must be re-examined, cartridge boxes refilled, so that each man should carry about 100 rounds of ammunition on his person, while each troop commander must see that in the company wagon there are placed a few boxes of reserve ammunition. Then, when the equipment of the soldier has been attended to, his horse, without whose assistance he is helpless, must be looked after. Loose shoes are tightened by the driving of an additional nail, to accomplish this, one must see the company blacksmith, 
a soldier, with the few simple tools of his kit on the ground beside him, hurriedly fashioning the last shoe by the uncertain light of the candle held in the hands of the rider of the horse, their mutual labor being varied at times by queries as to how long shall we be gone? I wonder if we will catch Mr. Lowe. If we do, we'll make it lively for him. So energetic at every one bed that before daylight everything was in readiness for the start. In addition to the regularly organized companies of soldiers which made up the pursuing column, I had with me a detachment of white scouts or plainsmen and one of friendly Indians, the latter belonging to the tribe of Delawares once so famous in Indian wars. Of the Indians, only one could speak English. He acted as an interpreter for the party. Among the white scouts were numbered some of the most noted in their class. The most prominent man among them was Wild Bill, whose highly varied career was made the subject of an illustrated sketch in one of the popular monthly periodicals a few years ago. Wild Bill was a strange character, just the one which a novelist might gloat over. He was a plainsman in every sense of the word, yet unlike any other of his class. In person, he was about six foot one in height, straight as the straightest of the warriors whose implacable foe he was, broad shoulders, well-formed chest and limbs, and a face strikingly handsome, a sharp, clear blue eye, which stared at you straight in the face when in conversation, a finely shaped nose inclined to be aquiline, a well-turned mouth with lips only partially concealed by a handsome mustache. His hair and his complexion were those of the perfect blonde. The former was worn and uncut ringlets falling carelessly over his powerfully formed shoulders. Add to this figure a costume blending the immaculate neatness of the dandy with the extravagant taste and style of the frontiersman, and you have Wild Bill, then is now the most famous scout on the plains. Whether on foot or on horseback, he was one of the most perfect types of physical manhood I ever saw. Of his courage, there could be no question. It had been brought to the test on too many occasions to admit a doubt. His skill in the use of the rifle and pistol was unerring, while his deportment was exactly that opposite of what might be expected from a man of his surroundings. It was entirely free from all bluster and bravado. He seldom spoke of himself unless requested to do so. His conversation, strange to say, never bordered either on the vulgar or blasphemous. His influence among the frontiersmen was unbounded. His word was law, and many are the personal quarrels and disturbances which he has checked among his comrades by a simple announcement that this has gone far enough, if need be followed by the ominous warning that when persisted in or renewed, the quarreler must settle it with me. Wild Bill is anything but a quarrelsome man, yet no one but himself can enumerate the many conflicts in which he has been engaged and which have almost invariably resulted in the death of his adversary. I have personal knowledge of at least half a dozen men whom he has at various times killed, one of these being at the time a member of my command. Others have been severely wounded, yet he always escapes unhurt. 
On the plains, every man openly carries his belt, with its invariable appendages, knife and revolver, often two of the latter. Wild Bill always carries two handsome ivory-handled revolvers of the large size. He was never seen without them. Where this is the common custom, brawls or personal difficulties are seldom, if ever settled, by blows. The quarrel is not from a word to a blow, but from a word to the revolver, and he who can draw and fire first is the best man. No civil law reaches him. None is applied for. In fact, there is no law recognized beyond the frontier, but that of might makes right. Should death result from a quarrel, as it usually does, no coroner's jury is impaneled to learn the cause of the death, and the survivor is not arrested. But instead of these old-fashioned proceedings, a meeting of citizens takes place. The survivor is requested to be present when the circumstances of the homicide are inquired into, and the unfailing verdict of justifiable self-defense, and so on, is pronounced and the law stands vindicated. That justice is often deprived of a victim, there is not a doubt. Yet in all the many affairs of this kind in which Wild Bill has performed a part, and which have come to my knowledge, there is not a single instance in which the verdict of twelve fair-minded men would not be pronounced in his favor. That the even tenor of his way continues to be disturbed by the little events of this description may be inferred from an item which has been floating lately through the columns of the press, and which states that the funeral of Jim Bloodson, who was killed the other day by Wild Bill, took place today, and then adds, The funeral expenses were borne by Wild Bill. What could be more thoughtful than this? not only to send a fellow mortal out of the world, but to pay the expenses of the transit. Gurrier, the half-breed, also accompanied the expedition as guide and interpreter. Everything being in readiness to move, the column began its march and reached the vicinity of the village before day had fully dawned. Here a brief halt was necessary until the light was sufficient to enable our scouts to discover the trail of the Indians. When they finally set to discover this, their method was highly interesting, and resembled not a little the course of a thorough sportsman, who, with a well-trained pointer or setter, thoroughly ranges and beats the ground in search of his coveted game. The Indian had set out on their flight soon after dark the preceding night. The heavy frost covered the ground and rendered it difficult to detect the trail, from the many pony tracks which were always found in the vicinity of a village. We began to grow impatient at the delay when one of the Indians gave the halo as a signal that the trail was discovered, and again the column marched forward. Our order of the march was for the Indian and the white scouts to keep a few hundred paces in advance of the troops, so that momentary delays upon the part of those watching and following the trail should not extend to the troops. The Indians, on leaving the village, had anticipated pursuit and had adopted measures to mislead us. In order to prevent their trail from being easily recognizable, they had departed in many detachments or parties, almost as there were families or lodges in the village, 
each party taking a different direction from the others, having personally agreed, of course, upon the general direction and place of reuniting. Once being satisfied that we were on the right trail, no difficulty was found in following it as rapidly as our horses could walk. The Indians had nearly twelve hours the start of us, but being encumbered by their families, we hoped to overhaul them before many days. Our first obstacle was encountered when we struck Walnut Creek, a small stream running east and west, some thirty miles north of the Arkansas at that point. The banks were so high and abrupt that it was impossible to reach the water's edge, let alone clamber up the opposite bank. A few of the Indians had been able to accomplish this feat, as was shown by the tracks on the opposite side. But the main band had moved upstream in search of a favorable crossing, and we were compelled to do likewise. Here we found that the Indians had called a halt, built fires, and cooked their breakfast. So rapidly had we gained upon them that the fires were burning freshly, and the departure of the Indians had been so abrupt that they left several ponies with their packs tied to trees. One of the packs belonged to the famous chief Roman Nose, who was one of those who met us at the grand gathering just before we reached their village a few days before. One of our Delawares who made the capture was very proud of the success and was soon seen ornamenting his headdress with the bright crimson feathers taken from the wardrobe of Roman Nose. Encouraged by our progress, we continued the pursuit as rapidly as a due regard for our horses would permit. Thus far, neither myself nor any of the soldiers had caught sight of any Indians. But our Delaware scouts, who were consistently in the advance and on our flanks, taking advantage of the bluffs to reconnoiter frequently, reported that they saw small parties of Indians observing our movements from a distance. From positive evidence familiar to those accustomed to the plains, we were convinced that we were rapidly gaining upon the Indians. The earth upturned by the feet of their ponies and by the ends of the trailing lodge poles was almost as damp and fresh as that disturbed by the horses of the command. Soon we discovered additional signs of encouragement. The route now became strewn with various lodge poles and other obstacles peculiar to an Indian's outfit showing that they were lightening up so as to facilitate their escape. So certain did we feel of our ability to outtrail them that the only question now was one which had often determined the success of military operations. Would darkness intervene to disappoint us? We must imitate the example of the Indians and disembarrass ourselves of everything tending to retard our speed. The troops would march much faster, if permitted to do so, than the rate at which our wagons had forced themselves along. It was determined to leave the wagons under the escort of one squadron, to follow our trail as rapidly as they could, while the other three squadrons pushed on in pursuit. Should darkness settle down before overtaking the Indians, the advantage was altogether against us, as we would be compelled to await daylight to enable us to follow the trail, while the Indians were free to continue their flight, sheltered and aided by the darkness. By three o'clock p.m. we felt that we were almost certain to accomplish our purpose. No obstacles seemed to stand in our way, 
The trail was broad and plain, and apparently as fresh as our own. Half an hour or an hour at the furthest seemed only necessary to enable us to dash upon our wily enemy. Alas, for human calculations! The Indians, by means of the small reconnoitering parties, observed by our scouts, had kept themselves consistently informed regarding our movements and progress. They at first risked their safety upon the superior speed and endurance of their ponies, a safe reliance when favored by the grass season, but in winter this advantage was on our side. Failing in their first resource, they had a second and better method of eluding us. So long as they kept united and moved in one body, the trail was as plainly to be seen and as easily followed as if made by a heavily laden wagon train. We were not called upon to employ time and great watchfulness on the part of our scouts to follow it, but when it was finally clear to be seen that, the race as it was then being run, the white man was sure to win, the proverbial cunning of the red man came to his rescue and thwarted the plans of his pursuers. Again dividing his tribe, as when first setting out from the village, into numerous small parties, we were discouraged by seeing the broad, well-beaten trail suddenly separate into hundreds of indistinct routes, leading fan shape in as many different directions. What was to be done? The general direction of the main trail, before dissolving into so many small ones, had been nearly north, showing that if undisturbed in their flight, the Indians would strike the Smoky Hill overland route, cross it, then pursue their way northwards to the headwaters of the Solomon or Republican River, or further still to the Platte River. Selecting a central trail, we continued our pursuit, now being compelled often to halt and verify our course. The trail gradually grew smaller and smaller, until by five o'clock it had become so faint as to be followed with the greatest difficulty. We had been marching exactly twelve hours without halting, except to water our horses. Reluctantly, we were forced to go into camp and await the assistance of daylight. The Delaware scouts continued the pursuit six miles further, but returned without accomplishing anything. The Indians, after dividing up into small parties, kept up communication with each other by means of columns of signal smoke. These signal smokes were to be seen to the west, north, and east of us, but nor nearer than ten miles. They only proved to us that we were probably on the trail of the main body, as the fires were in front and on both sides of us. We had marched over thirty-five miles without halt. The Delawares having determined the direction of the trail for six miles, we would be able next morning to continue that far, at least unaided by daylight. Our wagons overtook us a few hours after we reached camp. Reveille was sounded at two o'clock the next morning, and four o'clock found us again in the saddle, and following the guidance of our friendly Delawares. The direction of our march took us up the valley, an almost dry bed of a small stream. The Delawares thought we might find where the Indians had encamped during the night by following the upward course of the stream. But in this we were disappointed. The trail became more and more indistinct until it was lost in the barren waste over which we were then moving. To add to our annoyance, the watercourse had become entirely dry, 
and our guides were uncertain as to whether water could be procured in one day's march in any direction except that from which we had come. We were, therefore, forced to countermarch after reaching a point thirteen miles from our starting place in the morning and retrace our steps until the uncertain stream in whose valley we then were would give us enough water for our wants. Here I will refer to an incident entirely personal, which came very near costing me my life. When leaving our camp that morning, I felt satisfied that the Indians, having traveled at least a portion of the night, were then many miles in advance of us, and there was neither danger nor probability that encountering any of them near the column. We were then in a magnificent game country, buffalo, antelope, and smaller game being in abundance on all sides of us. Although an ardent sportsman, I had never hunted the buffalo up to this time, consequently was exceedingly desirous of tasting its excitement. I had several fine English greyhounds whose speed I was anxious to test with that of the antelope, said to be, which I believe, the fleetest of animals. I was mounted on a fine, large, thoroughbred horse, taking with me but one man, the chief bugler, and calling my dogs around me, I galloped ahead of the column as soon as it was daylight for the purpose of having a chase after some antelope which could be seen grazing nearly two miles distance. That such a course was rashly imprudent I am ready to admit. A stirring gallop of a few minutes brought me near enough to the antelope, of which there were a dozen or more to enable the dogs to catch sight of them. Then the chase began the antelope running in a direction which took us away from the command. By availing myself of the turns in the course, I was able to keep well in view of the exciting chase, until it was evident that the antelope were in no danger of being caught by the dogs, which latter had become blown for want of proper exercise. I succeeded in calling them off and was about to set out on my return to the column, the horse of the chief bugler, being a common-bred animal, failed early in the race, and his rider wisely concluded to regain the command, so that I was alone. How far I had traveled from the troops I was trying to determine, when I discovered a large, dark-looking animal grazing nearly a mile distance. And yet I had never seen a wild buffalo, but I at once recognized this as not only a buffalo, but a very large one. Here was my opportunity. A ravine nearby would enable me to approach unseen until almost within pistol range of my game. Calling my dogs to follow me, I slowly pursued the course of the ravine, giving my horse opportunity to gather himself for a second run. When I emerged from the ravine, I was still several hundred yards from the buffalo, which almost instantly discovered me, and set off as fast as his legs could carry him. Had my horse been fresh, the race would have been a short one, but the preceding long run had not been without effect. How long, or how fast we flew in pursuit, the intense excitement of the chase prevented me from knowing. I only know that even the greyhounds were left behind until finally my good steed placed himself and me close alongside the game. It may be because this was the first I had seen, but surely of hundreds of thousands of buffaloes which I have since seen, 
none have corresponded with him in his size and lofty grandeur my horse was above the average size yet the buffalo towered even above him i had carried my revolver in my hand from the moment the race began repeatedly could i have placed the muzzle against the shaggy body of the huge beast by whose side i fairly yelled with wild excitement and delight yet each time would i withdraw the weapon as if to prolong the enjoyment of the race it was a race for life or death yet how different the award from what could be imagined still we sped over the springy turf the high breeding and metal of my horse being plainly visible over that of the huge beast that struggled by his side mile after mile was traversed in this way until the rate and distance began to tell precipitately upon the bison whose protruding tongue and labored breathing plainly betrayed his distress determined and the chase and bring down my game i again placed the muzzle of the revolver close to the body of the buffalo when as if divining my attention and feeling his inability to escape by flight he suddenly determined to fight and at once wheeled it as only a buffalo can to gore my horse so sudden was this movement and so sudden was the corresponding veering of my horse to avoid the attack that to retain my control over him i hastily brought up my pistol hand to the assistance of the other unfortunately as i did so my finger in the excitement of the occasion pressed the trigger discharged the pistol and sent the fatal ball into the very brain of the noble animal i rode running at full speed he fell dead in the course of his leap quick as though i disengaged myself from the stirrups and found myself whirling through the air over and beyond the head of my horse my only thought as i was describing this trajectory and my first thought on reaching the terra firma was what will the buffalo do with me although at first inclined to rush upon me my strange procedure seemed to astonish him either that or pity for the utter helplessness of my condition inclined him to alter his course and leave me alone to my own bitter reflections in a moment the danger into which i had unluckily brought myself stood out in bold relief before me under ordinary circumstances the death of my horse would have been serious enough i was strongly attached to him had ridden him in battle during the portion of the late war yet now his death except in its consequence was scarcely thought of here i was alone in the heart of indian country with warlike indians known to be in the vicinity i was not familiar with country how far i had traveled or in what direction from the column i was at a loss to know in the excitement of the chase i had lost all reckoning indians were liable to pounce upon me at any moment my command would not note my absence probably for hours two of my dogs overtook me and with mute glances first at the dead steed then at me seemed to inquire to cause of this strange condition of affairs their instinct appeared to tell them that they were in misfortune while i was deliberating what to do the dogs became uneasy whined piteously and seemed eager to leave the spot in this desire i sympathized with them but whither should i go i observed that their eyes were generally turned in one particular direction 
This I accepted as my cue, and with one parting look at my horse, and grasping a revolver in each hand, I set out on my uncertain journey. As long as the body of my horse was visible above the horizon, I kept referring to it as my guiding point, and in this way contrived to preserve my direction. This resource soon failed me, and I then had recourse to weeds, buffalo skulls, or any two objects I could find on my line of march. Consistently, my eyes kept scanning the horizon, each moment expecting, with reason too, to find myself discovered by Indians. I had traveled in this manner, what seemed to me about three or four miles, when far ahead in the distance I saw a column of dust rising. A hasty examination soon convinced me that the dust was produced by one or three causes, white men, Indians, or buffalo. Two to one in my favor at any rate, selecting a ravine where I could crawl away undiscovered should the approaching body prove to be Indians, I called my dogs to my side and concealed myself as well as I could to await developments. The object of my anxious solitude was still several miles distant. Whatever it was, it was approaching in my direction, and was plainly discernible from the increasing columns of dust. Fortunately, I had my field glass slung across my shoulder, and if Indians, I could discover them before they could possibly discover me. Soon, I was able to see the heads of mounted men running in irregular order. This discovery shut out the probability of their being buffaloes, and simplified the question to white men or Indians. Neither during the war did I scan an enemy's battery or approaching column with half the anxious care with which I watched the party then approaching me. For a long time nothing satisfactory could be determined, until my eye caught sight of an object which, high above the heads of the approaching riders, told me in unmistakable terms that friends were approaching. It was the cavalry guidon, and never was the sight of stars and stripes more welcome. My comrades were greatly surprised to find me seated on the ground alone and without my horse. A few words explained all. A detachment of my men followed my directions, found my horse, and returned with saddle and other equipments. Another horse, and Richard was himself again, plus a little valuable experience, and minus a valuable horse. In retracing our steps later in the day, in search of water sufficient for camping purposes, we marched over nine miles of our morning route, and at 2 p.m. on April 16th, we went into camp. From this point, I wrote a dispatch to General Hancock and sent it back by two of my scouts, who set out on their journey as soon as it was dark. It was determined to push on and reach the Smoky Hill route as soon as possible, and give the numerous stage stations along that route notice of the presence of warlike Indians. This was before the Pacific Railroad or its branches had crossed the plains. Resting our animals from 2 until 7 p.m., we were again in the saddle and setting out for a night march, our only guide being the North Star. We hoped to strike the stage route near a point called Downey's Station. After riding all night, we reached and crossed about daylight the Smoky Hill River, along whose valley and stage route runs. The stations were then from 10 to 15 miles apart. If Indians had crossed this line at any point, the station men would be informed of it. 
to get information as to this, as well as to determine where we were, an officer with one company was at once dispatched on this mission. This party had scarcely taken its departure, and our pickets been posted, before the entire command of tired, sleepy cavalrymen, scouts, and Delawares had thrown themselves on the ground and were wrapped in the deepest slumber. We had slept perhaps an hour or more, yet it seemed but a few moments when an alarm shot from the lookout at the startling cry of Indians brought the entire command under arms. End of chapter 4